you guys have never been here before, my name is Greg Brooks. I have the privilege of being the pastor here at Outpost Community Church. And we are a community of believers who've come together to be the church together. And when we say be the church, it's a group of people who come corporately to gather together. And we're in a gymnasium. This is not a church building. Buildings are just buildings. Churches meet in buildings. And the churches are people. And I am the church. And uh, many of the people in this room are the church. And if you're not, I'd love to have a conversation with you about what it means to be the church. So before we get going, though, it's 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to be in verse 17 is where we're starting. Before we begin, let me pray for you. Let me pray for me. And uh, let's dive in together, okay? Well, Father, I know because of what your word says that there is no way that I can teach this scripture with power, without your spirit helping me. And I also know that we cannot receive the word into our hearts in a real, powerful, effectual way unless spirit you help us. So Jesus, we're just saying right now that we're a group of humble people who are sinners, who are broken, who are easily distracted, who need your help. None of us are coming to this room saying that we are righteous and we deserve to be saved. We are coming saying we got nothing to bring to the table and we're thankful for everything that you brought to this table. And may you be honored and glorified, God, above all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's do this. Oh, I gotta say this. I got this this gift in my office and it's this Bible. And I wanna tell you, this is... This is going to sound, you're like, oh, you're a pastor, so you would say this. This is one of the coolest things I've ever been given, and it's awesome. So to the people who gave me this, it says it's from Outpost Community Church on our one-year anniversary. Thank you. This is awesome. I love it. It feels good. It's goat skin. That's cool. All right. Let's keep going. Let's read from it. But in the following instructions, I do not commend, uh, commend you because you come together. When you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse, For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup and after supper said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other things, I will give direction when I come. I'll talk to you when I get there, is what he just said. All right, um, so we're diving in. Now, here's what I want to do, okay? There's a lot of information. So I broke this down into not three, not five, but eight points, okay? This is the most points I've ever had in my entire life. I want you guys to see these because I'm gonna tell you uh, what they are. This is where we're going, okay? This is what I want you to see. 
First, we're going to talk about the, equity, the equality of the Lord's Supper, okay? That this is something for everybody. Then we're going to talk about the origin of the Lord's Supper. Where does it come from? Where do we get this? The participants of the Lord's Supper. Who's supposed to be a part of this? And then we're going to talk about the physical action of actually eating, the mental action of remembering, the spiritual action of nourishment that comes from it, renewal, the sacredness of the Lord's Supper, and finally, at the very end, and please wait till the end to raise your hands, okay? We're going to talk about the application of the Lord's Supper here at Outpost Community Church. How are we going to walk this out? All right? You excited? So pay attention. You'll get there in the end if you want to know. All right, let's do this. You ready? So excited. Emails are going to be coming, and it's going to be great. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. The dinner table is the one place in the world where we see a massive differentiation between peoples all over the world, okay? It shows a huge difference, socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnicities, races, creeds, whatever, there is a, the dinner table is a place where we see this difference, all right? Not just in our dinner tables, but when I, for instance, when I went to China uh, about eight years ago, uh, I went to China and things were different, right? To be expected. When I would walk into a house, it smelled different. The way that they ate was different. They used sticks rather than spoons. To be honest, I love the Chinese. But forks and spoons exist. Why would we not use them? Okay? It's like trying to dig a ditch with two sticks. It doesn't make any sense. Okay. Anyways. So, but there was differences between the way they ate, all right? When I was in China, I also got to eat with some very wealthy Chinese people. And when we ate, the food that we ate was a lot different than the marketplace where I would eat uh, Muslim noodles, which had different types of spices, different ways that they would eat it, all right? In the wealthy place, we'd have this massive Lazy Susan that they would spin around, food was all on it, and you're just trying to grab it as fast as you can to get it to you, right? They had this honor culture where, you know, if they wanted to honor somebody, a guy would stand up and he would hold up his, his drink and he would say something about the person or you and he would honor you and, and then everybody would say, yeah, and we'd all just cheer one another and all drink together. It was crazy, all right? It was different. Now, compare that to my trip to Africa when I went to Senegal. And in Senegal, we sat on the floor together. There was a big bowl of rice and, and chicken and fish, and kind of what they had for the day. And we'd pull that under our plates and we'd eat. There's just different customs, okay? The dinner table is a place where we see that. At the dinner table in Corinth, there began to be a differentiation, but not for the better, he says, but for the worse. Because in Corinth, he says, I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And so what I began to see is in the Corinthian church, there was a great disparity, a difference being shown between the haves and the have-nots. Okay, imagine the pain of that. So what we can kind of infer, what many guys guesstimate at, is what was happening is the haves didn't have to work as long, had more money, and able to eat more food. And what they would do is they'd come together and they would feast. And then the have-nots who probably had a job and were out working would come later and had no food and they would show up. And at these people who had been feasting all day, there's no food, and there's nothing to commune together in. And it was creating, can you imagine, pain in the community? between almost we're better than you versus you had to go to work. And it's creating this disparity and this pain. And he says that uh, it, it was felt in the community. He says, I believe it in part because there must be factions among you. And what he means by that is saying this, that God, not you, but God can show us not just the disparity of economic backgrounds, but in that we saw a disparity of heart. But there was a difference in heart. There was a brokenness of heart in the people. And that is a problem because the dinner table or the Lord's Supper is a place that overcomes all inequalities. It's a place where every man, every woman, every, woman, every tribe, tongue, nation, color, creed, nationality all come together under one banner, equally in need for, from Jesus. It's a place where enemies come sit and dine together 
okay? I think Don Carson, who wrote the book Love in Hard Places, says it beautifully. He says this, the church is made up of natural enemies. What what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. When we come together at the Lord's table, what Paul is trying to say say to us is it's a place where no matter who you are, every single one of you was dead in your sin. And now, because of what Jesus has done in his gospel, which we celebrate at the table, we can all have the freedom to come together, no matter who you are. That's beautiful. It's the one dinner table in the world where all men and women can sit. Praise God for that. That's why Paul responds in verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? It's not meant to be a place where there's humiliation of other people. In fact, it's a place where we all come humbly to the Lord, okay? So the church that gathers around the table gathers with an equal need. You need to understand the equality of the Lord's table first and foremost, all right? Point two, all right, we're a quarter of the way in. Here we go, point two. The origin of the Lord's Supper. Where do we get this supper from in the first place? Well, we get it from the Lord, okay? So if you go back to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three Gospels, you are going to see a Passover meal at the end of the Gospels where it's a recounting or retelling of Jesus sitting down with his people. So now I want you to just use your imaginations and imagine these guys sitting in this room together, okay? It's Jesus and 12 other men who have come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. They have different accents. Some are Galileans. Some are fishermen. They're all a little bit different. Personalities are different. And they're sitting around this table with the Lord. And it's the Passover meal, okay? And they're laying on the floor together all around this thing. So much so that even John can kind of lean on Jesus, snuggle up. It's kind of cool. And so they're together, and they're sitting there and there's food all over the place, right? And br- uh, drink and bread and all these things. And it, at this meal, we read this in the Gospel of Luke. That Jesus then uh, went and he said this. When he had given thanks, he said, take this, talking about the bread. He took some bread. He said, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will, or no, this is the drink. I, I apologize. Um, and, it, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. And you'd imagine all of them just passing this out to all of them and then drinking together, okay? And then he took the bread, and he takes this bread, and when he had given thanks to the Lord, he broke it and gave it to them, each taking a piece, right, saying, this is my body, which is, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they'd eaten, he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So that night, Jesus began something new in the life of the church, and it's what we call the Lord's Supper. And it would be practiced by the church uh, for the last 2,000 years in a variety of different ways, but it's been practiced for 2,000 years. And Jesus passed it to his disciples that night. And Paul tells us now in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says this, for I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. I want to show you something in this. That's why we're talking about This shows us that this supper, which Paul calls the Lord's Supper, that's where we get this title from, we didn't make it up, was a practice or reenactment of that night of Jesus with his disciples, okay? And Jesus gave this to his apostles who gave it to the church, who continued to give it to the church. It's what we around here at Outpost call a 2 Timothy 2-2 type ministry. It's a ministry of passing on what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and entrusting to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So this leads me to the question, does this have to be performed by a pastor on a Sunday morning to be effectual? For this to have a real impact, to have any meaning, does it have to be done by a pastor? Anyone want to take a wild guess? My interpretation is I would say no. 
This is a ministry of the church that is meant to be passed on to the church. Now, I've got friends who believe that this should be only by pastors. I have no proof of that in scripture. All I know is this was passed on. Now, here's what I would say. Titus tells us that pastors and elders are called to guard the doctrine of the church, to guard the purpose and meaning and teach what this is really about. But this, friends, is a ministry of the church. And who's the church? You are, hopefully, it's the people. And you're a priesthood of believers who are gathered together in the name of Jesus Christ. So, this, this is, when I, if I hand you a drink, it's, it doesn't make it any more Christ's blood than if you were to lead it. I want to answer that question. I want you to see and understand that. It's important for us to understand that the ministry of this table is a ministry of the church. But we're going to talk about a lot of, we're not done. There's a lot more to talk about. Let's keep going. Who are the participants of the Lord's Supper? Point number three. The answer is fairly simple, doesn't take a lot of math, but those who are expected to participate in the Lord's Supper are believers in Christ, the church, okay? So let me be very clear. This is not meant for unbelievers. Let me say it again. This is not meant for unbelievers, okay? Just as Pagan rituals and pagan practices and sacrifices to idols is not something that's meant for Christians. We do not partake in that. We do not divide up our hearts between the ministry of what Paul says in chapter 10 of demons and the ministry of Christ. We're all Christ. And you're either all Christ or you're not Christ. This is meant for the church, okay? That's why Paul says, chapter 10, verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one body, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Okay? So what this means is that to take part in this is to participate with and to identify yourself with Jesus and his sacrifice. Why would a non-believer do that? If you don't believe in Jesus... Why would you identify with Christ? In fact, what I would say is you are drinking to your own condemnation if you do so. Does that make sense? Now, that sounds exclusive, but here's the reality. <laughs> the salvation of God is inclusive. You can believe and you can trust and you can become a Christian and you can absolutely participate in this to the praise of God. But if you don't believe in Christ, it makes no sense to be a part of it. This is meant for believers to take part in together. But when we take part in it, what are we also doing? We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus says it, Paul repeats it. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What does this mean? It means when you were a part of this, you are physically proclaiming what Jesus has done. I right now am verbally proclaiming what Christ has done. When we take part of communion, we are physically proclaiming what Christ has done for us, all right? And to do that, isn't it you saying, hey, I, my hope is in what Christ did. My hope is in the gospel. My hope is in the blood and body of Jesus being broken and that the, a, that actually did atone for my sin. That's what I'm doing here. That's what this is about, okay? And that is why it's for Christians, all right? And we, it means that we choose to look to Christ, also, because this is a ministry of the church, participating and proclaiming in the Lord's death, it is a ministry that is meant to be participated in when we come together, all right? Let's talk about this question, because here's where hot takes come out, all right? What does it mean when you come together? I made phone calls, I called people, uh, or I, I went and read articles, I read commentators, I did, I just chased down every route I can of people who disagree with me, or, or not disagree with me, but practice a different way. What does it mean when they corporate, corporately come together? We've got to answer that. Because what you need to understand is, and this is what everybody I talk to does agree with, that this is a ministry of the local church that's meant to be a, taken part in when we come together. Now. Does that mean when the whole city of Christians come together? Is that the whole world when we come together? Is it the city? Is it this local gathering right here? Is it a community group? Is it, what about a men's retreat? What about a women's retreat? Okay. There are some men who believe that it's only when the corporate gathering come together. This right here, a Sunday morning gathering. It's only that time. 
And when I hear men make arguments for it, the more I hear them art- articulate why, the more I disbelieve their biblical background or like how they're biblically supporting it, okay? And I doubt more and more of what they're trying to say because the point is this. Nothing in scripture says this is what we mean by corporate gathering coming together. It's not what it says. So here's what I would tell you. Is this a time where we can do communion together? Yeah, bodies gathering together. In our local community groups, is that a place where the church is coming together to be the church? Yes. When men come together at a men's retreat to be the church together as men, is that a place of the church coming together? Yes. I think there's freedom here, and I want you to see and understand that that is the freedom that Jesus, I think, is offering to us. It doesn't have to be this corporate gathering. Remember, there's a whole picture you need to see here, and I want to give you some of those answers. Now, let's move now to the physical action. If you've got questions, I'm going to give you my email. You could ask all of them. It's going to be great. Let's talk about the physical action of taking the Lord's Supper together, okay? Because there's a physical action. There's literally some bread and some juice that we are going to physically take in. So in this section, I want to talk about two different questions. The first question is, what kind of bread and drink should we take? The second question is, how often should the church eat bread and drink? You ready for this? Anybody want to come up here and answer? Okay, no. And if you do, I'm not going to let you. So here we go. Let's dive, into this. Let's dive into the first question together. What kind of bread and drink must we take? Okay? There's a lot of hot takes in this question, but the answer is very simple. There's no command here. There's not a command here of what type of bread it has to be. Okay? There's freedom here. There's no command of what kind of drink it has to be. There are some things that we can conclude. So let me challenge what I just said back to you, okay, friend? This meal, we know, was at the Passover. So we can safely assume what kind of bread the Jews were eating that night, right? Unleavened bread together. We can probably safely assume that when Jesus says, I will no longer drink a cup of the vine, that we're talking about some kind of grape juice or wine or something like that, right? We can safely assume that. But you need to understand that this is not the focus of the meal. And when you make it the focus, you are distracting your heart and the body from what the point is. Do you hear me? Now, here's where I depart from my good friend John Piper a little bit. Okay, let's be vulnerable right here. Who do I think I am, man? Um, But here's what I want to tell you. Is there flippancy in the way we can do this? Absolutely. Okay, we're sitting around eating pizza not pizza. But I'm not saying don't do pizza. What I'm saying is this. It should not be a part of the normal meal. It should be a set apart piece of the meal. You try what I'm saying? It should be something set apart. It's not like, you know, as we have a pizza on the table, let's just do this. I got that wrong for a lot of years and said, or not a lot of years, but for some time, the last year. And what I would say is it's something that's meant to be set apart. Something that you say we set apart to do. Now, it's fairly easy and common for us to be able to grab bread, grab juice. If it's Gatorade, if it's water, if it's Wonder Bread, or if it's, if it's gluten, ungluten, I don't think the Lord cares, man. If it's leavened, if it's unleavened, that's not the point. You want to do that, that's fine. The point is that you take it serious and that it is two different elements that represent the body and the blood of Jesus. We're not divvying out noodles, but it's something that is set apart from the body. Does this make sense? Okay, we're not trying to be dogmatic about this because you shouldn't be. That's distracting and it's not the point. All right? Now, this is where we depart from our Catholic brothers and sisters who believe in something that's called transubstantiation. Transubstantiation is their way of articulating that they believe that when they take the physical bread and physical wine, that it literally turns into the literal body of Jesus in us and the literal blood of Jesus in us. But the problem is there's nothing that substantiates transubstantiation in Scripture. Jesus says that in the Gospels. And so that's not what it does. They are a representation to give us remembrance, which we're going to talk about next. But before we go there, let's talk about how often we should do this, okay? How often should the church do this? This whole room's got opinions, all right? But let me just go ahead and tell it. Let me read to you. This guy's name is Ken Stewart. He's a professor of theological studies at Covenant College. I think he says it perfectly. He says it perfectly. This is what he says. None of the approaches to the question of frequency of communion 
daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, or annually, are self-evidently the right one, given the fact that the New Testament does not directly address the frequency question. Dogmatism on this subject cannot, therefore, be warranted. Do you hear that? I completely agree, okay? So this is another time. Christ says uh, that as often as you do this, you proclaim. The statement is not about, uh, is, is about proclamation. It's not about frequency. This is a mistake that I have made in my interpretation in the past. And there are faithful friends of mine who practice this in different ways. And I think they're doing it in a way to honor Christ, and they're making a decision for their body. John Piper's church, for instance, does it monthly. Matt Chandler's church, for instance, does it weekly. There's freedom here. The point that I'm trying to make is this, that frequency is a decision that each local expression of the church is going to make to the benefit of its people to practice a healthy remembrance of what Christ has done and instituted. Did you hear that? It's a decision that each uh, local church has to make to edify the body, okay? And there is good arguments for all. There's the daily argument where people say we should take this daily, we should do this daily, okay? And they say why as often as you gather, we should do it every single time we eat, but it's supposed to be when we gather as a church. There's the weekly argument that it should be done on Sabbath days. It seems that Jesus appeared to his church on Sabbath days or whatever the case may be, say we should do it on Sabbath, but there's nothing that clearly expresses that. There's also an argument that talks about we should do this once a year. We should do it at the Passover when Jesus did. There's an argument there. But we can't say each, which one of those is the one, okay? So I'll talk about how it's going to apply that here at the local church. But the main point you need to understand is that there's some freedom in this, okay? All right. Again, I'll give you my email. Mental action of the Lord's Supper. Let's talk about the mental action, okay? Moving on. With both elements of the Lord's table, Jesus says... Do this in remembrance of me. So in the Lord's Supper, there is the mental action to focus on, and listen, the kids are going nuts, and it's awesome. Um, There's a mental action that goes on in the midst of taking the Lord's Supper. It's a time where we remember the literal, historical, physical reality of Jesus Christ, a man who truly walked this earth and who was truly historically verified crucified on a cross for us. And we remember that, remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us. It's kind of like this. When I was sitting in a room, I was sitting in a room with about 40 people, and we had a teacher, and he's my friend named Nate. And Nathan Wagnon was teaching us, and he started to share a war story. Nathan was in the Army as an officer and spent some time in the Middle East during the early years of the war. And so as he was telling us the story, he's teaching a lot of things, but then he went to tell us this war story. And in him telling the story, you could tell by looking at his eyes that he was not in the room anymore. There was a moment in in him telling that story where he was seeing, hearing, feeling what was going on in that moment of the story he was explaining to us, and we could see it on him. We could see it in his face. Everything else was driven out. When we come to the Lord's table, we come to it like that. Now, we weren't there at the day that Jesus was crucified, but we take time, and we will take time later when we do this together, take time to, to mentally drive out all things, to focus in on, and to remember what Christ has done for us. It is our focus the literal, historical Jesus, the Son of God, and him being on a cross, and we, we think on it and feel what Christ has done and what had to be done for guys like me. And that's what we do with the mental action when Jesus says, remember. Now, let's pause for a second. We talked about a physical action. We talked about a mental action. I want you to think about this. Anybody can do those. Do you hear me? Anybody can eat bread and drink the cup. Anybody can think back to a historical Jesus. How, why is this only for believers then? Why is this a church thing? Well, there's a spiritual action, and that's what I want to turn to next. And this is something that is a spiritual benefit to the body of Christ, to you. You want to know there's a spiritual benefit? There is. Let's talk about it. Here we go. The spiritual action of the Lord's Supper. The spiritual action of the Lord's Supper can be seen more specifically in chapter 10. It's the passage I read to you guys a little bit ago. When we come to the table in a worthy manner, we are participants with Jesus 
in his sacrifice. Now, not physically, but spiritually we're participants with that. That word participate or participant, uh, it comes from the, a Greek word that some of you might know. It's koinonia, right? Sometimes you use to describe the church. The koinonia, the fellowship. So it means to, when you do that, you're identifying with, you are a part of, you have fellowship with Jesus in his sacrifice, okay? So when Paul says the bread that we break, it is a participation in the body of Christ, that is what he's saying. So in practicing the physical and mental action of the Lord's table, we who come to the altar with faith, in faith, trusting in Jesus and the finished work of what he did on the cross are not only physically filled, but we are spiritually renewed by what we are doing together. There's a spiritual nourishment in our participation. That's why the Westminster Catechism, which I'm sure all of you have memorized, uh, says this. This is what it says. We feed upon the body and blood to our spiritual nourishment in growth in grace, okay? So when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, by faith you receive the blessing of the new life in Jesus, and you became new. You were a new creation, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, right? That we should walk in them, all right? Um, and so by the Holy Spirit, we have this in us. But when we come to the Lord's Supper, in faith, we're embracing that work in our lives, and there's spiritual nourishment, spiritual renewal that happens when you take time to do this and we do this Together. Now, is this like a new salvation? No, it's not salvation. It's not a new salvation. But there's a spiritual nourishment that comes from it. I told you guys, it's going to be a teaching time. And look at your faces, you're like, oh my goodness, this is boring. No, this is great. Keep with me, stick with me. There is spiritual power and renewal that comes to us when we do this. But let me tell you, it's the same spiritual power and renewal that comes when you read your Bible every day, it's the same. To say otherwise is kind of crazy. You go to the Word of God, what does Jesus say? I've got a bread you don't even know about, right? And they come to him, they're like, what do you mean you got bread? He's like, I got bread you don't even know. I live by the Word of God. Doesn't mean that this doesn't matter and communion doesn't matter. It does matter. It's something that Jesus wants us to practice. And it brings spiritual renewal to the people, okay? It gives us renewed hope, renewed peace, renewed joy. Why? Because you're thinking about what God has done for you, what he's accomplished through a physical reminder. It's amazing. Now, if there's spiritual renewal that comes through taking the Lord's Supper and doing this together, and we come together in a worthy manner, reflecting back on what Jesus has done for us, we're humbly here confessing our sin before the Lord, what happens if we do this in an unworthy manner? Are you ready for this? What happens when we come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner? This is the the next point. The sacred seriousness of the Lord's Supper. And this is serious. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Okay, so what does it mean to eat in an unworthy manner? I'm sure some of you all want to know that. I do. Well, first, you must understand that this does not mean that you have to be worthy. That is not what he's saying. Coming in an unworthy manner and being worthy are not the same thing. Listen to me. In fact, it's our unworthiness that is the reason we come to the table. Do you understand? I'm unworthy. You're unworthy. Coming in an unworthy, what Paul's referring to is the matter of our heart. It's the way in which unworthy people approach it. Okay? So when we come to the table with unrepentant sin and an unwillingness to repent, a willingness to continue in that sin, it's an unworthy manner. When we come faithless, it's coming in an unworthy manner. When we come flippantly, She's not even taking it serious. Oh, yeah, just give me the bread. Give me the drink. Let's just go. Let's do this. Let's do this thing and let's go. When we come flippantly, it's an unworthy man. We're not taking serious the fact that the Son of God died for you. This is a holy thing. This is a solemn reminder. So we approach this thing with, with caution, with humility, with honesty. Say, God, I got sin in my heart and in my life. 
We're going to do that here in a little bit. We're going to take time to approach this thing well. Now let's talk about for a second, when we don't do that, it says you're guilty, but look what else he says, verse 28. So he says, let a person examine himself, which is what I was talking about, looking into your heart then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. Look at yourself. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, does this judgment mean that condemnation? No. Does it mean you're drinking judgment on yourself, saying that you... Uh, that you know, you're gonna be condemned to hell, now you're judged as unworthy and you're done, Jesus, you're not Jesus, no. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are saved forever, all right? You never lose your salvation. But it's like this. I think uh, the commentator Stephen Um says this well. He says, if one is afflicted by sin, if you are afflicted by sin, the Lord's Supper is comfort. But if you are comfortable in sin, the Lord's Supper is affliction. Let me say that again. If you are afflicted by sin, the Lord's Supper is comfort. But if you are comfortable in your sin, it will be affliction. How do I know that? Look what Paul says, verse 30 through 32. I'm going to read this very slowly, not because you're dumb. You're smart. I'm going to read this slowly so that you hear it, and hopefully we can together understand it. Verse 30. That is why many of you Corinthian Christians are weak and ill, and some have died. Approaching it unworthily. But if we judged ourselves truly, right, through self-examination, looking into our heart, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world, okay? Be very careful in how I say this. What this means is that Jesus sometimes disciplines the saints when they are judged to have approached the Lord's Supper with faithless, flippant hearts. Now, we've got to be careful to recognize that the judgment mentioned is not the same as condemnation. He separates them. Okay? There's a difference here. There's a difference. So when we come to it an, uh, with an unworthy heart, he's saying it's not that you come to it and therefore you condemn. He says that you just came to it wrong. You came to it wrong. For example, when he says that if you judge yourselves truly, you wouldn't have any judgment from the Lord. Judgment here is the same as saying if you examine yourself truthfully, you would recognize those places of sin and faithlessness, which is exactly what the Corinthian elite failed to do. They were haughty and prideful in their approach, showing faithless and flippant hearts. So Jesus, in his grace, disciplined many of them with weakness, illness, and even death. I'm not making that up. That's what it says. That's what it says. And it's, been, it's discipline to them. He, God allowed some of them to become weak, to get sick, and even some of them to die. Now, this death is not death that leads to hell. You hear me? It's discipline. Listen to the way John Piper says this. I think it's a great way of explaining it. He says, what it says to all of us is this. We do not need to be certain whether the time of our death is owing to our sinning or to the devil's cruelty or to God's otherwise purposes. What we need is the deep assurance that even if my dying is owing to my own folly and sin, I can rest peacefully in the love of God. Because at a, such a moment as these words, they will be precious to us. We are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned with the world. Do you see this? Hebrews chapter 12. If you want a better explanation, Hebrews chapter 12. This is what it says. Listen to these words, man. This is beautiful. This is what God is saying. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And daughters, for what son is there that whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So it's like, God, please discipline me. I want to be your son, for sure. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we, we respected them. 
Shall we not much more be subjected to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Praise be to God for that. For the moment, for, uh, the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Now listen to this last part. This is critical for understanding what we just read in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, verse 12 of, of Hebrews 12. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the path for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. So what God is saying, what Paul is saying, is sometimes to heal the body of Christ. He allowed some who are approaching it flippantly with faithless hearts to become ill weak, and even to die. And it brings healing and strength to the body, the body of Christ. You want a good example of that? Acts. There's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property for a certain amount of land, or a certain amount of money. And when they sold that, they, it was worth this much, but they told everybody that they only made this much, okay? And they came and donated that, but they had a bit reserved. They lied. Why? Because they wanted to look good. Pride. What ends up happening to Ananias and Sapphira? They die on the spot. You go, good gravy. You know what, you know what the early church did? They said that, but in Greek and Hebrew. You go read that passage. It does not tell us that Ananias and Sapphira went to hell. But it does tell us that the the church feared the Lord. And I would say uh, healing and respect for God. And so what Paul is saying here is we should come to this respectfully, guys. This is not something to be flippant with. This is not something to be callous or careless with. This is something that we come to celebrate and honor. The Son of God dying for undeserved, unworthy people like us. So we take serious this time. We look at our hearts and say, God, search my heart. Is there any sin in me? And I want to lay before you. I want to confess it to you, Lord. Okay? That's how we approach this meal. Now, there's a thousand things we could say, more things we could say, and we can argue about and all that. I want to give you the flyover picture and answer a lot of questions so that when you got to this part, which you're hopefully a little bit excited about, the application of Outpost Community Church, you understand how we arrived at some of the conclusions we arrived at. Okay? So now, I want to talk to you about here is an outpost belief statement on where we are at, okay? I'm going to read it to you. And then I'm going to talk to you about how do we want to make this a part of our life here at Outpost in a way that edifies the body, strengthens us, and we experience the spiritual renewal that comes from this. All right? Anybody ready? All right, let's go. All right. You guys are great. We believe... That the Lord's Supper is a meal consisting of two elements, the bread and the wine, that represent the body of Christ and the blood of Christ that were broken and shed for the remission of sins for all who by faith repent and believe in Jesus. It is a meal that is meant to be shared as we gather corporately for the purpose of mental reminder and spiritual renewal. It is to be done after self-examination with thankfulness only by the church. Non-believers should never be encouraged to participate because they are eating and drinking to their own condemnation. Did you see that in everything we read? I hope you did. Now, everything I'm about to say and I'm going to read, members of Outpost Community Church, you're going to get an email on Tuesday. You got an email on Friday. You're going to get an email this Tuesday articulating these so that you understand them. I'm not expecting you to memorize everything I'm about to say right now, okay? But you're going to get an email articulating these things so you can see them, ponder them in your communities, discuss them in your community group, and as necessary, work through your community group leader and community group shepherd if you have questions about how we're going to work this out. Does that make sense? Here's one of the things that we are going to decide to do, and that's not gossip. You know what gossip doesn't help? Anybody. So, if you love Christ and you love your neighbors, talk and discuss. And let's have this conversation 
uh, in an appropriate manner. Does that make sense? I'm just anticipating, right? I'm just, look, it's a room, and y'all are sinners, man. So I just know it's going to be great. All right, let me read this. We will practice this at Outpost Community Church in our Sunday morning gathering periodically, three to five times a year. We're not giving you really a number, but the idea is periodically on our Sunday morning gatherings. These times of communion in this corporate gathering together will serve the purpose of reminder and renewal. It will be me as a pastor and our elders guarding the doctrine of what this is about and stewarding it with you and reminding you of what it truly is about, guarding that doctrine. That's my responsibility as what the Bible tells me in Titus. You hear me? So that's what we're going to do. Now, we will encourage our members to practice the Lord's Supper in community at least once per month for the purpose of reminder and renewal as a church. We want to provide freedom for each group to choose frequency greater than one time per month, but encourage each group to participate at least once per month so it is a regular part of the life of our church. Do you hear what I'm saying? You just heard me say that I can't be dogmatic on frequency, so I'm trying my best to not be dogmatic on frequency, but at the same time, we as the elders, we as the leaders of the church want to be sure that this is a regular part. And so we're leaving some freedom in your hands, but no less than once a month in our community groups. Okay, hopefully that makes sense. All right. If your community is having a meal, some of our communities eat dinner together. Mine should do that more often. We don't. I don't cook, so it's probably part of the problem. If your community is having a meal that night and you plan to participate in the Lord's Supper that night, it needs to be a separate action apart from the ordinary meal. Do you understand that? That became a problem in the early church. We don't want that to be a problem. It needs to be a separate Separate, solemn, serious thing that you do together. You track what I'm saying? Doesn't matter. I'm going to keep going. When we participate in the Lord's Supper in our Sunday morning, morning gatherings, I want you to understand we welcome all believing Christians to participate with us. You do not have to be a member at Outpost to participate on our Sunday morning gatherings doing this together. And we discourage all unbelievers in this room to participate for reasons that I've already explained. We will never encourage non-believers to participate in this meal with us. This includes non-believing family members in community. So I'm a parent, okay? If I do not believe my daughter has given her life to Jesus and we're doing this together in community as families as we corporately gather together in a home to gather to be the church separate from the meal, but my daughter hasn't given her life to Christ, I'm not going to encourage her to take part in that, but I am going to encourage her to look with her eyes and see what her mom and her dad participate in and who we identify with. And she's going to see a sinful dad who humbly comes to the Lord, celebrating his victory in my life. We want unbelievers to see what we do. It's a proclamation of the Lord's death until he comes. Okay? Instead, we will participate in this meal with humble hearts, inviting our non-believing friends and family to witness our need for Jesus' sacrifice and the gloriousness of his victory. Okay, so to sum it up, I know it's been a lot. To sum it up, there's going to be various times throughout the life of our church each year where we're going to practice this together. You'll hear me teach on it, reminding our body of the truth behind it. And we're encouraging the members of Outpost Community Church in community to practice this at least once a month together. Okay? You want to do it every week, that's fine. But at least once a month together. So at least 12 times a year you're doing this together corporately in your community group, and that's how we're gonna practice it. It provides both guarding the doctrine and freedom to understand frequency. And we encourage you guys to not be flippant as you do it, okay? Don't be slapping around, just cutting up pizza, being flippant, take it serious, all right? We've already argued earlier, talked about the fact that I do not believe, and we don't believe, that it has to be unleavened bread. Make that argument to a South African Christian who has no idea what you're talking about. 
I humbly present that to you. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to take communion together. As a corporate body, we're gathered here together. Okay? And so we've got some friends who are going to bring up some baskets and they're going to stand up here. Because it's post-COVID season, we're not going to do it the way the early church did it. Okay? We're not going to all take pieces of bread and dip it in the same cup. Because you guys would all freak out. Some of you would be like, ew. Okay? And so let me just explain as a way of reminder. Let's take, what we're going to do is we're going to take some time right now. Um, and you can. You can turn the lights off. I'm going to pray. And after I pray, I want you personally, if you are a believer in the Lord, I want you to take time to pray between you and the Lord. I like to open up my hands as a physical way of showing that, God, I'm open-handed. And ask the Lord if there's any sin in my heart. Do good self-examination. And take this time serious. Confess to the Lord. You do not have to be perfect. You do not have to be worthy. You are already unworthy. That's the point of this meal. But we come to it with a worthy heart as we approach it. We approach it in a worthy way, giving honor and respect to what this is about. So we're going to give you about a minute to pray, to search your heart to the Lord. Music is going to play. And then what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to invite you guys to come up. And if you want to partake in this with us, a believer, if you're a believer in Christ, you can come up and you can grab one of these cups. And you're going to take it back to your seat. And you're just going to hold on to it, okay? And then when uh, the time comes and everybody has gotten what they need and they're back in their seats, I'm going to read the scripture to us. And we're going to take of the bread and of the cup together, okay? So let's take a minute to just pray. If you are a non-believer, I encourage you to watch us but not participate. If you want to begin a relationship with Jesus, we would love to talk with you about that but observe what the believers in Christ do in this moment. Let's pray.